1: Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host today, Laura Goldberg. Some of you might know me as Vittles Vamp uh, from my blog. Uh, by all means, check it out. But uh, I'm here today on New Books Network on the Food Channel, and I'm very, very excited to welcome Je- uh, Gesina Bullock Prado, who um, is an author and an incredible baker. And somebody that I've actually admired for several years, because um, actually, just so you know, Casina, I uh, reviewed your very first book and truly admired the transition you've made from being a Hollywood executive to now having, uh, well, should I say a confectionery empire?
0: <laughs> I wouldn't say empire, um, but it, i I love what I do. I love living in Vermont. And I love, I love teaching so much and I love having a simpler life.
1: Well, I got to tell you that came through in that book. And I know we're here to talk about your new book, My Vermont Table. But before we go there, I do have to ask you some questions about that first book, just because I'm just so excited to have this opportunity to talk to you about it. Um, Because when I got the book, when I read it, it was called Confessions of a Closet Master Baker. Confessions
0: of a Closet Master Baker, yes. Yes. Yeah. And a hard copy. Yep.
1: Right. And then it, it changed names to, to yes. my life from scratch. Can you
0: tell me it's a so little confusing. bit about how that happened? <laughs> it's so confusing. Uh, well, it was hysterical because, or not so hysterical, when I wrote the book, Confections of a Closet Master Baker was my title, right? And um, I sold the book and it was kind of getting closer to pub date and the editor who bought the book called to say, do you know that there's an unintentional pun in the title? And I, I was gosh, I'm like, what do you mean? It was totally, it was totally intentional. And I just think that obviously they just never got it. So once it came around to the paperback, they just decided to change it. Um, Which totally bummed me out. Uh, But I thought they know better than I. And so I said, okay. And I came up with my life from scratch. Um, So, but I find it, I found it confusing to change it. And I think readers found it confusing because they think there are two different books out there, but it's the same, it's the same book.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what I figured out after I started sort of deep diving into it. And I'm, I'm just curious, what was the process? Did you, so you came up with both titles. This wasn't Correct. like you know, some yeah. focus group was involved because you know at one point in time I I met this gentleman who had a company and literally what he did was figure out what was going to work by way of titles and even author names that for some huh. books you know apparently you know if it was written by a woman it wouldn't sell as well you know it was better to like if your name was you know Helen oh, yeah. Smith yeah. Yeah. then it was by H Smith um, so sure. I, yeah. I just was
0: curious. No, the, I, I came up with both titles. Um, it was my first book. And I, you know, I had some input. Obviously, it had great input because it was my original title on what it was in the beginning. Not a ton of input on what the cover looked like. Um, and then once they made that decision to change it, I they gave me, no. you know, I didn't have a choice, but I had a yeah. choice in deciding W- uh, what the new title would be. So it was up to me to come up with a new one that they approved. So, um, I said about doing that, but, uh, you know, I found you know, com- publishing is so confusing. It was my first book. I know this is now, this is my seventh book. I know so much more now. Um, yeah. uh, it, obviously I would have had a different tack, uh, in approaching how I did the first book, but I still love it so much. Um, I revisit it often, uh, but yeah, I find it's very confusing. And my editor, of course, <laughs> as it happens in the publishing world, she left before the book came out. And so it was one of those things too that, um, you know, it was a regime change. Different things happened with a book like they didn't, you know, you know how the publishing industry is because oh, of all the changes. Yeah because of all those changes uh because of i mean the initial confusion about the title clearly if they didn't get it to go going in (laughs) there was a problem to begin with but um you know you live and learn and uh i'm just you know i'm happy that i got to keep writing books
1: well and and you most certainly did i've got to say i really enjoyed uh reading my vermont table and um, I'm going to ask you the question now that I'm sure everybody has been asking you, because it's not just my Vermont table. It's my Vermont table recipes for all six seasons. So um, uh, provocative, because most of us think of four, um, obviously. But, um, you know, also, I did look at that and think to myself, because I do know a bit of your history. You, you probably had one season, really, when you were in Los Angeles. Um, <laughs>
0: That's so true. So, That's one of the things that moved me out here is I missed season so much. Uh, so a lot of people who are not from Vermont think that I'm making this up, but I'm not, this is like, not that I had, this is not out of a whole cloth, this invention of two more seasons. This is yeah. how we in Vermont observe seasons, um, that there we right now we are in a very early mud season. And in that period bef- between, uh, fall, or we would call it peeper season, and winter, we have stick season. Um, and it's a way of kind of graphing out how life changes um, and in some ways making ourselves feel better <laughs> because like mud <laughs> season, our winters are the longest season. It is what it is. And yeah. they're actually getting shorter, but still the longest season. And so mud season is that period between, as I said, spring. In winter where the big thaw happens and the majority of our roads are dirt. So during the thaw, they become full-blown mud. And if you think navigating in the winter is hard, navigating during mud season is far more challenging because I, I always think back to when I was a kid and you're, you're probably too young for this, but when I was a kid, we were promised that life would be full of quicksand. Like that was going to that and um, instantaneous combustion. Like there were these like horrors that awaited us in life that maybe there's quicksand out there, which never materialized. However, mud is pretty much like quicksand in that if you're driving in a very muddy road, you're, you're going to be stuck there for days. Yeah, so, you're, you're
1: sinking in. Absolutely.
0: We observe it as a season all its own, but it coincides with sugaring. So when it thaws, the maples start running sap. And that's when we make maple syrup. So there is a trade-off, right? So there's the mud that's meh, but that just means that it's the sweetest season is here.
1: Oh, that's lovely. I mean, I did notice in the book, you actually do an entire how to directions on sugaring. Um, I'm just curious, you know, because I'm going to be honest with you, I can't imagine many of the people that pick up the book are going to be able to actually do that. Um, You'd
0: be surprised. Yeah, there are a lot of states where like there are if you've got a maple tree. That is over 10 inches in diameter. If you have had a decent winter where it got somewhat cold, and if there's a period, and it'll probably be earlier in most states than it is here, if you have these periods where it is freezing at night, but it gets above freezing during the day, you can make maple syrup. It might just be a little bit, but it is such a fun and such an American culinary adventure. And I don't think enough people... Kind of endeavor to do it, especially with kids. It's just an extraordinary experience. And the fact that when the sap starts running, it is clear, barely sweet, and you can't imagine that the transformation really? will ever actually work, right? Because it's 40 gallons of sap for one gallon of maple. It's like gold. That's why it's so expensive. Um, but you. when you make it yourself and it's work, uh, it is so magical. You really, this stuff, when we make it, so we make just enough for ourselves. We treat that stuff like we, like literally like we've got a, a little like Fabergé egg. It's like, do not waste this stuff. Do not waste it.
1: Fascinating. I'm just curious, uh, you know, cause you talked in there about um, sugar on snow which yeah. I thought was absolutely fascinating um, because I remember reading, and I don't know if you remember reading these same books, the Little House on the Prairie books. Yeah, of course. And and I remember Laura actually doing that um, to actually, you know, and, and just so people listening know what was fascinating here was that I um, What happened was when it snowed outside, they took the maple syrup and and drizzled it on the ground to make candy.
0: Yeah. So what you do, so how you make maple syrup is you boil, you evaporate the sap until it reaches generally 219 degrees, depending on your elevation, what your boiling temperature is. So that is maple syrup. And you could just stop there. But usually when we're going through the sugaring process of making maple syrup, you have like a little party and get together. And then you make sugar on snow where you take that finished maple syrup and you boil it to 235 degrees, which is softball. If you know, sugar work, um, and once it gets to 235, you pour it on the snow so that it immediately um, hardens to that wonderful taffy-like consistency. And that's what the snow does. It's like this instantaneous candy maker. And you serve it with, usually the tradition is plain donuts, unglazed, yeast-raised donuts, and pickles. And it sounds very odd, but the combination is genius. It totally works. You can imagine how sweet that sugar syrupy candy is. And then you have that unglazed donut where it's essentially you're making glaze in your mouth. You take a bite of the donut and then that lovely dill pickle just kind of breaks it all up and it's a bit of a palate cleanser. And then you can have like beer, or coffee or whatever it is. And, and when you have that experience as a child or an adult, you will never forget it. It is so delicious and so specific to the season and area but it's something that you can do so you don't have even if you don't sugar yourself you can do this with maple syrup and some like crushed ice you can like celebrate the sugaring season in california i could do this in los angeles if i were there and i could like have this little sugaring party and make some sugar on snow and some people call it jack wax and there are different names for it but here we call it sugar on snow uh, well, I I gotta say
1: it it just took me back to this moment in my own childhood reading about it and wanting to do it so and 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 now I'm thinking I mean I live in New York and it hasn't snowed yet um, and I don't know if in New York snow if I want to try it but um, it 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 did sound awfully magical and and made me want to visit Vermont you know as soon as I could. And I think that's part of the appeal of the book, and and I wanted to ask you because I I loved this um, term that you mentioned in the book, Flatlander, that yeah. you're a Flatlander, which of course made me think of Outlander and the, and the the Star <laughs> series, But do yeah, you not
0: this? dissimilar, right? Not dissimilar. Um, Well, it's really funny. The joke here is that you could be born in New Hampshire, right across the river and like be two minutes old and then be brought over to Vermont and you'd still be considered a lifelong Flatlander. Um, And my husband who was born in Denver and raised in Denver, he's considered a flatlander and, you know, he's from the mile high city. (laughs) So it is, people look at it as a derogatory term, but it is, I, you know, I look at it with affection that, you know, I'm a flatlander, but with an adopted Vermonter.
1: Got it. Got it. So, um, thinking of, of, Vermonters. I I did not realize and was surprised to learn in your book, and I guess I shouldn't have be surprised that King Arthur Flour is based in Vermont. Um, And I know you have a relationship with them. um, And you mentioned that in the book. Uh, If you could give us, you know, tell people a little bit about that. I thought that was interesting because I I use their flour um, religiously in my own baking.
0: As you, as any baker should, that is the, it is the flower of bakers. So King Arthur Baking Company is just 15 minutes away from me. They're right around the corner um, in Norwich, Vermont. And it's really interesting when that first book came out that we talked about, Confections, um, I was doing my promotional tour for that. And Susan Miller, who ran the Education Center, contacted me and she said, we would love to have you come teach a class and teach something from the book, and I thought, oh, that's scary, but of course I'll do it. And she's the one who introduced me to my superpower, which is teaching baking. Had I not done that, I don't know that I would have had the fully fulfilling life that I have now. Um, but they also make just the best flowers. Um, and I always ha- lecture my—not really lecture—but I tell my students, you know, exactly why. Bakers use the flour, um, and it's just so convenient that they're right around the corner, and they've got the most amazing baker store that I always warn everyone, just kind of call your credit card company that this is not fraud, the amount of money you're going to be spending in the store. Uh, well, I mean, it, so you use, obviously, this
1: flour in everything you do, professionally and personally, is from the sounds of it. And I didn't mean to turn this into a King Arthur flour uh, commercial. But, you know, I I am going to turn it, though, into a sous vide commercial because uh, I also caught that in your book, uh, that you feel strongly that that every home cook should actually have a sous vide. And I have one. And and I can't say enough good things about it. Um, I, I was hoping you could talk a bit about your first experience with sous vide, why you love it. Uh, what exactly it is um, for for those listeners that, that have not heard of this, this marvel of culinary uh, technology?
0: Absolutely. One of my favorite tools. Um, I think one of the things, first off, is that sous vide is, because it's French, and it is used in the kind of very ele- elevated Michelin uh, cu- culinary circles that a lot of people look at it as kind of a tool that would be too hard to use and would be out of their price range. So neither is true. Um, One of the reasons I I was so enamored by it is that I grew up uh, vegan. So kind of the whole world of cooking proteins wasn't in my childhood. And um, as I grew up and started exploring an omnivore lifestyle, uh, I you know, I was always frightened of screwing up proteins, no matter how much training I had, it was always in the back of my mind. I, I, I'm just so not familiar with this. And I'm a little uncomfortable with cooking proteins. And then the vide became a thing that was available to everyone, uh, not just chefs. And I thought, okay, so if they're promoting this for everyone, and I'm a, you know, I'm scared, I'm going to start using this. And I I started realizing that everything that made me scared about cooking proteins, about wasting all this money on something so precious, messing up the temperature of it, perhaps murdering someone because your chicken wasn't cooked all the way through, um, all of those things could be alleviated just by using the sous vide. And what it does is that you vacuum pack your meats and you season them. You can put butter, all these luscious things in there so that whatever you is in that vacuum pack is infusing uh, your ingredient and it doesn't need to be protein. I do, uh, I do potatoes with it. And then you put it in the circulating water bath and it's not that whatever the food is, is getting, is touching the water. It is that the water is creating a very consistent temperature that allows you to cook whatever is in there to such a precise temperature that you can be guaranteed that your chicken will be perfect, your fish will be perfect, or what I love it. I use it with my beef Wellington because that's when I call it the hidden protein because you're wrapping it in so many other things, and there are only so many times you want to stab that puppy with a thermometer before messing up that beautiful pastry case. That if you I sous vide it to just under asking my dinner guests what their preferred temperature is. I sous vide it to just under that temperature so that when it's in the oven, I know when it comes out and I slice into it, it will be pitch perfect from tip to tail, the temperature that I was intending. Um, it, It is a tool that I have found so useful in... All kinds of things, not just proteins, but for me, especially proteins um, and cooking them perfectly and beautifully and being so I mean, the results are professional with so little work. The ease of using it is fantastic. It's not that expensive and it fits in a drawer. So, I mean, I can't I can't praise it enough.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you 110 percent on it. Um, I I feel like this is a device that has really been a game changer in terms of cooking meats. But as you have said, I mean, I've I've done you know vegetables in it as well, including like sweet potatoes that I put in with cinnamon sticks and yes, some maple syrup. Yes. Um, oh
0: yes, 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 yes. That's amazing.
1: It's it's incredible. It's really incredible, and. Uh, you know, anyway, I was just so delighted to see someone say that, um, in this, in, in your book, it was really, you know, it, it, it took me by surprise and it made me smile because I don't feel like enough people know about it and enough people, you know, realize what a difference it's going to make in their cooking.
0: Yeah. And I think seeing it work and then actually trying something from, um, from it, my, whenever I make Wellington more than I should, um, And it's also one of those cuts of meats that that is so expensive that in, you just do not want to mess that up. It is just, it's too precious. Um, but also meat temperatures in beef are so specific to people and knowing that you can get it bang on, that if you want to get steaks to different temperatures, you can like sous vide everything ahead of time because you sear it after, right? It's a reverse sear. So if you have, you know, you want to serve individual steaks to your guests and they all have different temperature preferences, you can pre-sous vide everything to different temperatures, and then you can sear everything off at the same time, and everyone will be delighted. It is such an, it's a game changer.
1: Oh, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But okay, I feel like I need to get back to the actual book as, you know, now that we've done... (laughs) Arthur, king Arthur Flower and sous vide commercials. Um, I, I, you know, you mentioned that you grew up as 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 a, a vegan, right? Um, yes. But you also you also grew up, you know, basically in the South. And I did notice in the book that you have a king cake, and I wondered, you know, is that because of your Southern roots, or or does king cake have a place in in Vermont culture?
0: Well, I think the king cake also has maple in it. So the book is called my Vermont table for a reason and that my influences are wide and I bring them here. My one rule was that I wasn't going to make anything in the book that I couldn't source the ingredients from, like within a, uh, like a five mile radius from where I was. Um the one exception the one exception is Duke's Mayo which I have uh, shipped to me from the south um, so the king cake was something that I grew up with like my my relatives in the south would always send us one uh, I grew up in 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 the DC area um, so you know people consider that south ish kind of mid-atlantic ish but my dad's family is in Alabama so we have like we would spend a decent amount of time in in the South of the United States and my mother's family, my mother's German. So we would spend a lot of time in the South of Germany. So I'm a Southern girl all the way around. And I happen (laughs) just to live in in the North. Um, So yeah, it's one of those things that it is very American. I think that version of King cake um, and it is, it is a memory of childhood, but also kind of creating a bit of that kind of Vermont mystique in it with having a bit of maple in it. And just, of course, using King Arthur flower and all that goodness.
1: Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Vermont goodness, I also was uh, really taken aback when you started talking about saffron from Vermont in one of your head notes for the, the, for the onion saffron tart. So you actually have a field of croci, crocuses, in, in, how did, how did you start? I mean, because I I, I look at crocuses, once again, live in New York as if I'm going to try and harvest here, Um, but I have a friend who's in the spice trade, so, but please tell me about this.
0: So I discovered this through, there was a, uh, an article in our local paper about this Uh, collaboration between um, a local who was Iranian and UVM, which has an amazing agricultural program. Um, And they worked to realize that the growing climate here and conditions were very similar to the saffron growing uh, conditions in Iran. And he was curious. He's like wondering if it was possible to grow saffron here. And so they uh, collaborated and discovered that indeed we actually have the perfect little microclimate for growing saffron in Vermont. Uh, When I discovered this, I got myself online and ordered a ton of bulbs. And now I have this like scattered throughout our farm saffron crocuses, which are fall blooming. They're not spring blooming, which is... uh, A lot of people were, and I was very surprised when I first discovered this, but it's also incredibly delightful because it's so lovely to see kind of at the end of any blooming season, this gorgeous purple flower with these like neon orange stigma, just like waving at you going, come get me. And it's just so beautiful. And um, it's magical because you would think it would never be possible. And, and here we have saffron, Growing in Vermont, and, and they are UVM and many farmers are really making a push into creating a viable cash crop of saffron in Vermont.
1: That is fascinating. As I said, I have a friend who's actually in the spice trade, and I'm going to bring this up with him. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I've got a feeling uh, we might start seeing this. Uh, become an industry Uh, because I I I love saffron and it's so expensive but it's so incredibly evocative the the smell when you're cooking with it it's it's, beautiful oh the aroma is just tremendous and um, yeah I'm cooking uh Indian this weekend so saffron will definitely be at play but I don't have it from Vermont now now I want to try it (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, I'm hoping that in the very near future, it will be probably more affordable simply because there is this crop here growing in Vermont that won't have to travel so far to get to consumers in America.
1: Yeah, no, one can only hope. Um, So I need to ask you about your love of Halloween, Because, oh my goodness, when I was looking through your book and I saw those crispy scream donuts, which literally look like Munch's The Scream, I I was blown away. And then the hand pies. Okay, for everyone, these are hand pies that look like hands. Um, I want to hear about what Halloween is like in the Bullock Prado household.
0: Well, I grew up in in our home in Arlington, Virginia, adoring Halloween. It was what it it remains obviously my favorite holiday. And my mom made it magical because we would start planning my costume like months out because she would make the most fantastic costumes. And where I lived, my community, my school, Halloween was a big deal. We celebrated celebrated it with so much joy and anticipation. So it lives in my memory as one of the the sweetest things from childhood. Uh, So to me, it's so evocative of joy and silliness and playfulness and creativity. And so there is no better place to celebrate it than in Vermont during stick season when the leaves have fallen and In the morning, there's always this cool mist and you're just the headless horseman could come out at any moment. I mean, the way Vermont feels during Halloween time, the spooky season is like no other. And I just get this. I'm just so happy. I get in the mood every year. I do a different pie that has a spooky theme. And I have one of them in the book, which looks like Jack Skellington and it's savory. You can do all of these things obviously without the like spooky theme going along with it. Cause they're all super delicious without like the spookiness attendant, but it is, I just find it just so delightful and fun. And why not share kind of the delight and fun with everyone around you just with delicious food.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I got to say, there was also something just so delightful in seeing these images and realizing how much Halloween must must mean to you that you felt like you needed to create treats and, and, and um, you know, pies and all sorts of things that, you know, took on this extra layer of visual uh, spookiness that yeah. uh, it just it was, it's really fun. It's just fun. I mean, you know, for anybody listening, you know, even if you're not a, a, a cook and home cook and you got to pick up this book just to take a look at these images. They're just fantastic.
0: And, and, and my, actually, can my you... husband took them all. So he's, your husband he's... took
1: those photos.
0: Yeah, he did. Oh, wow. Okay. Cause I, I was
1: thoroughly impressed with them. And, and um, the ones that I, Truly loved though are the ones that have you in them too. There's, there's uh, one with you um, that I really loved with uh, a duck who I understand is named Mama Goose. I mean, I Go guess that. it's not a duck. It's a goose. It's a yeah, goose. she's a
0: goose. goose, Mama Goose. She's my yeah. yeah I I have raised her from egg to now my best waddling friend.
1: But it sounded like I mean it was there was a, a whole section in the book. Um, where you talk about some trials and tribulations with a whole bunch of waterfowl. And at the end of it, though, you ended up um, forming this attachment with Mama Goose.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I loved about writing this book is that it is a cookbook, but it also harkens back to that first book we talked about in that I'm also telling stories of what it is to live here so that it isn't just about a book that, like, you have to live in this region to appreciate this book. I wrote this book to share the joy that I find in this place that I have found, to call home, uh, so that everyone everywhere can bring a piece of that Vermont comfort into their life. I wish I had had this book when I lived in LA. It would have given me so much comfort, because I needed the seasons, and I would have been able to bake from it and cook from it, and kind of bring some of that Vermont vibe to where I was living. And one of the things, one of the stories is during the storm Irene, um, our area was decimated and a local farm, um, was in great trouble with their animals and they were literally giving away chickens. Like they had Uh, They had started with thousands of chickens. By the time Irene came through, they only had hundreds left. And so they said, if you can catch it, you can keep it because they were just like everywhere. But then they also had waterfowl that they adored and they they wanted someone to foster them, uh, but they wanted them back at some point. And I volunteered both to see if I could catch any chickens and I volunteered to take care of their waterfowl while they were getting their farm back together. And during that time I fell in love with them. And so I decided close to, I had them for about a year. And so towards the end of the fostering period, I decided that I was gonna incubate some of those eggs. Um, And then I um, hatched out a, you know, a passel of ducks and geese. And um, I adored them, I mothered them, I, I, you know, all the fun things it is to be a, a goose and duck mother. Uh, but when when they start to mature, if you've ever been around a lot of waterfowl, you have experienced this. It was like game of Thrones when, once they get into puberty and it is just like, oh, this is not good. They are just mean little things, except for mama who all she wanted to do was sit on her eggs and have babies of her own. And what happened is that they beat her up so badly that they almost took an eye out and, um, I got so mad. I was like, mama, I'm going to protect you. So I went out to the farming community and the 4-H community. And I said, I'm going to put these uh, animals into their kind of natural pods, like 4 each where they, you know, you, you, you know who likes to hang out with each other. And I adopted them out to like 4-H kids um, and other bird keepers. And I kept mama so that she could be safe. And then I kind of got her back into health but she still wanted babies so badly. Like she would literally roll rocks into her nest and just sit on them. That's why she's called mama. So I did some research and I sourced some eggs for some chicks that were of a type of duck that is the gentlest duck around. So I call it the stoner duck. They're just so like Mm -hmm. relaxed. And I only got females because you know, males can still be pesky in the in the waterfowl world. And then I got her for four chicks. And when she heard them cheeping, she started shaking all over in anticipation. She was so happy. And she immediately started mothering them. And so now, Mama and I, um, she's 12 now. Uh, She and I have raised quite a few chicks together. Um, And uh, she's a joy. She's my little joy.
1: So i got to say, it sounds like there's a children's book in your future yeah. with uh, no, Mama Goose. We've
0: talked about it. We've talked about Mama Mama being a potential um, co-author of a ch- children's book.
1: I could definitely see that. <laughs> I mean, and as I was reading it, I was like, oh, and this would be great for adopted children. And, you know, <laughs> in reading that, it was just so lovely, the entire thing. Um so I mean, I was it. It was such a, an interesting thing in the middle of a cookbook, and then I realized, well, wait, where you live in Vermont, it, it is about being surrounded by you know farms and orchards, and and that includes you know duck eggs and 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 geese, and uh, I'm sure you know goats and and you know
0: you name it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, that, that's one of the things that's so lovely about. So I always think about when when the rest of the world thinks about Vermont, we are kind of a a vibe, right? It's not just Vermont as a state. It's Vermont as a state of mind. And I always laugh because like a, there are all these shows like it is kind of like. It's kind of the go-to for when you want to talk about getting away to someplace that's comfortable and comfy and cozy and loving and joyful. So like you know, shows from Friends to Scandal, when people are like, you know, I'm I want to retire to Vermont or we're going to spend the weekend in Vermont. It's just like it is the buzzword for this is a bucolic wonderful place. And so if you want to bring that out in your life, just think, you you know, just say I'm going to bring a little Vermont to my life today, and no better way to do it than through my cookbook. Haha. So, so, but I always <laughs> giggle. I always giggle when like on TV shows. It's like it, it you could you can predict it every time when they said, "Oh, let's get away to," and then like fill in the blank Vermont this weekend, and it's just it makes me so happy. It's because I think every American looks at this place as kind of that ideal for getting away. And our farms are a part of that, right? So if you think of like Ben and Jerry's and like the black and white cows and like just the rolling hills, it really is that. I mean, th- that's not a lie.
1: Well, I- I've got to say, I'm sure the Vermont Tourism Bureau is is very grateful <laughs> to, to us today um, and you in particular. I mean, uh, well, congratulations on this book because honestly, it, it, it t- took me away. It, it literally took me on a little trip to Vermont, even though I was sitting in Brooklyn. And um, I look forward to cooking from it. I haven't had the chance yet, but there were several recipes that certainly caught my eye. But I will say there were also some ingredients that I feel like I, I just have to come to Vermont, maybe rent a place and, and uh, take advantage of all that's there.
0: Oh, it, well, we we welcome you with open arms and lots of cheese and maple syrup.
1: <laughs> cheese and maple syrup. I I'm now I'm thinking do I drizzle some maple syrup <laughs> on top of some cheese?
0: Uh, hey, why not? It sounds why delicious no. to me.
1: Why not? <laughs> so, one question just to close it all out. Um I know and you mentioned earlier that that you've spent time in southern germany and I, I know that you grew up, you know, eating a lot of wonderful cakes there, but is there like a childhood guilty pleasure type of, of dish or, or, you know, treat that you still think fondly of that you sort of reinvented in any way for the bakery or, or just for yourself?
0: I, you know, quite a few. I mean, since, um, we moved to the States when I was five, um, and, went back every summer. So that was actually my chance to like go off my mother's, uh, vegan, vegetarian (laughs) rule, rule eating. Um, and the one thing that we, I would always go for first or something called Mao. Um, so when I was a kid, when I was really little, um, gummy bears, or Gummibiechen, as we would call them in Germany, they were only available in Germany. And then they came to the States and it was like, yay, they're here. But the one thing that never came over was this thing called Mau'am, which is a little like a taffy, but better. And I I have gone through, like in my book, Sugar Baby, I have a taffy recipe that I developed just because I was craving Mau'am. And when I get them, and of course you can now with the internet, you can have anything shipped. Uh, My sister and I will send them to each other around Christmas and curse each other because we will sit there with a tub of this essentially taffy and be so littered, littered, surrounded with the wrappers because it is so good.
1: Well, I I think the two of you need to start sending out Christmas cards together with a picture of you surrounded by the wrappers.
0: <laughs> it's a very good idea.
1: <laughs> I look forward to seeing that. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Once again, my Vermont table recipes for all six seasons, uh, Cassina Bullock Prado. Thank you so much. And uh, I can't wait to read the children's book and I can't read, wait to, to visit uh, Vermont. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, this was a joy.